And I think, yep, we are live. Uh, hello, everybody. Welcome to the Zach Hub podcast today. Really excited to be joined by Taylor Hornby, who is the Zcash ecosystem security lead. And that is a new position that was funded by via the Zcash community grants program. And it is a independent position um, where Taylor is doing a lot of different security audits for code bases in the Zcash ecosystem. Taylor, thanks for joining us today. Uh, yeah, thanks for uh, having me on your podcast. This is super cool. Awesome. Yeah, of course. Of course. I'm really excited to dive into a few different things. I, I want to, before I, you know, go off through my laundry list of questions, want to make sure that that intro is okay. That's, you know, the title of the grant and your, your role currently in the ecosystem. Uh, yeah, no, that's absolutely right. Um, I'm okay. sort of uh, calling the grant uh, Zexec, uh, just because I think that's a, um, a a cool name for stands for Zcash Ecosystem Security. Um, so if, uh, all the all the information about that, if if anyone's curious, is on uh, zexec.com. If they want want to look that up after. Awesome, cool. So yeah, and it ties in with like the ticker symbol too, and the new kind of the way people are calling the Zcash currency Zach, right? Obviously, people are starting yeah. to differentiate between the two. So that's a really cool name and plays on both of those. So I want to first before we dive into this new grant and some of the security audits you've you've been you've been working on and have completed. I want to just really quickly for the first maybe five to 10 minutes of the conversation, just dive into your background. Like you've been in the Zcash ecosystem for a really long time. I think you were with least authority as well before um, the Zcash protocol was, you know, built by the Zcash company. So just kind of want to dive into the old days and how you came to be involved in this and yeah, just kind of your background there. Yeah, that's right. So um, I sort of started out in the, the security in uh, industry doing um just audits of open source projects just for fun. Um, uh, uh, I do these like really fast, like two day audits of whatever, whatever open source project I found that would interest me. And I started um, posting those audit reports online. And I think that's how uh, uh, Zuko found me through those. Um, and I ended up joining Least Authority. And um, uh, that was a company led by Zuko at the time. Um, and what I worked on there was more security audit stuff. So that was like my first exposure to like real professional um, for hire auditing. Um, so I learned how to write up the reports, uh, different methodologies for finding bugs and all that kind of stuff. Um, so those are good times. Um, and then uh, Zuko took on the, the Zcash project eventually. Um, and I got uh, offered, do I want to stay with least authority and keep doing audits or do I want to move over and do this fun, fancy new uh, cryptocurrency thing? Um, and I like the idea of the fun, fancy uh, cryptocurrency thing. So um, moved over and to that uh, new company, um, Electric Coin, Co which ultimately became Electric Coin Company. Um, and so I was sort of there uh through the very beginning of the process of turning this what started out as just an academic paper into an actual working system um and so that was like a really defining time in my career um just seeing these like really really excellent people some of them like very excellently business minded some of them very very excellently uh technical and math minded um just seeing them work together in this like incredibly cohesive group to uh, create this pro product that um, up until then had only just been this academic paper. Um, 
yeah, that was like a, one of the best experiences of my life was um, that time there. So from, from, from your perspective, like what were the, you know, various, you know, I, I don't want to call them challenges, but things that you encountered, you know, getting into that role, coming into, you know, building Zcash and, and really being a part of, you know, the engineering team and you've obviously focusing on the security side of things. Like what were some of the, the early, I don't know, obstacles or, or, um, you know, different things that you were encountering when you first were started to work on Zcash? Uh, the hardest thing for me was um, just diving into uh, the cryptocurrency tech as a whole. Um, so we ended up deciding to make a fork of Bitcoin and add Zcash features on top of Bitcoin. Um, and that's sort of where the, the uh, Zcash has transparent addresses. Um, those come from um, the sort of like Bitcoin side of Zcash. Um, and so the hardest part for me sort of transitioning to that was just like learning how Bitcoin worked, understanding this whole uh, Nakamoto consensus model, how mining works, um, how blocks are put together, how uh, transactions are hashed and signed, all of this like really deep technical stuff, which is um, not too crazy cryptographically, but it's all, um, it was all sort of like new concepts to me and just yeah. learning sort of the concepts and diving into this like massive body of C++ code that was Bitcoin at the time uh, was pretty challenging. And and do, did you find, so first, first, this, so coming into Zcash was your first exposure to cryptocurrency as a whole, or did you have any experience with that, at least authority doing security audits? Um, I had no actual, I'd heard about Bitcoin on like podcasts and stuff. And mm -hmm. um, I owned a little bit of Bitcoin at the time. Um, so I'd, I'd at least like used it and knew what it was and knew the idea behind it. Um, but it was the very first time I'd ever actually thought about like working on it. Okay, very cool. And were there any, you know, specific things that you found like throughout the journey of like, you know, um, starting with the ECC in the very beginning and up until this very recent point, um, you know, getting your own individual grant from, um, from ZCG, were there any, you know, things from an audit perspective or things that you found like in the code base that were ended up could have been like very crucial. Like I know that, um, there was obviously the Zcash inflation bug from a long time ago. I think that was spotted by um, Ariel Gazabon, is, I believe his name was. I think pronounced. that's right. Yeah. 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 So, was there any like other situations that you were working on that were like that when you were auditing code bases that could have been, you know, very big? Um, that could have been very big situations for Zcash, or was it just more of like the code um, just kind of went as is? Um, so, there's one bug that I found um, called the internal H collision bug that I can talk about a little bit. That um, yeah, for sure was a bug in the in the original um, zero cash paper that Zcash was based on. Um, and sort of the issue there was, um, uh, well, to I don't want to get too technical, but um, to understand the bug, you sort of have to understand how the Zcash protocol works a little bit. Um, so there's a concept in the protocol called notes. Um, and notes are basically the unit of storage for your money. Um, and when you spend a note, you basically use a zero knowledge proof to prove that you know the secret key um, associated with this note and that you're not creating money out of thin air and stuff like that. And so mm -hmm. this particular bug involved the way uh, notes are committed to on the blockchain. Um, on the blockchain, there's the thing, there's something called a note commitment set. 
And so that's uh, a commitment is a cryptographic object uh, that's basically a hash. It's um, it lets you prove that uh, uh, some data existed at a certain point of time and that you know that data. Um, and if you combine that with the zero knowledge proof, you can prove that you know some data without telling mm -hmm. anyone else what that data was. And so uh, in the original zero cache paper, there was a bug in the way they implemented that um, uh, cryptographic commitment. Uh, they were trying to get this property called um, uh, statistical hiding, uh, which is which is a, a privacy property of a commitment where even if you have like infinite uh, computing power, you still can't tell what the data is. So that's like, mm -hmm. they're trying to do that for it to make the privacy is super, super strong. Um, but the way that they did that was by um, uh, taking one of these hashes and truncating it and making it just a little too short, uh, which made it possible to... Um, do this collision attack against the hash. And what that meant is um, uh, it basically, if you could do these hash collisions, you'd be able to uh, spend notes multiple times. So the, the way Zcash prevents you from spending notes multiple times is each note has a nullifier and the nullifier should be unique. So every time you spend a note, you have to reveal the nullifier. And the blockchain checks that it never sees the same nullifier twice. That should should normally mean nobody is spending the same note twice. Um, and what this bug allowed you to do was actually, for every hash collision you could find, you could spend the note again with a different nullifier. So if you had some funds in your wallet, uh, you could spend it first the first time with its normal nullifier, uh, but then you could spend it again and again and again for every other hash collision you found. Um, with a so, different, with a, with a different nullifier. Yeah, exactly. Okay. And so the blockchain wouldn't be able to tell that you're spending, uh, the same note multiple times. It would think, uh, because which note you're spending is protected by the zero knowledge proof and all of the privacy properties. So as far as the blockchain knew, you're spending a new note. Um, when in fact you're spending the same note over and over. Um, so yeah, that bug was found before, uh, we even started building Zcash. Um, so it never made it into production um, or anything like that, but it was kind of like a, a near miss, uh, that, it, it, uh, it, yeah, it also seems somewhat of like a defining moment, like for you personally, like that seems like a really, cause the zero cash paper from my relatively limited understanding of it was well, was well received in a lot of circles and, and was really, you know, kind of studied very, I would say it was probably studied, you know, relatively closely by a lot of different people in the industry. So kind of pull it, finding that within that paper was probably, you know, a big moment for you personally as well, I'm assuming. Uh, yeah, it sort of, um, uh, yeah, it's definitely one of the most impactful bugs I've ever found in my career. I wouldn't say it's the most interesting because it's kind of just like, um, noticing that a hash is too small and asking what happens if you can collide it. Like I found more interesting uh, cryptographic bugs that are like, took a lot of thought to figure out and, and get mm -hmm. to work. Um, so I wouldn't say it's my favorite bug, but yeah, it was definitely like um, a moment where I realized like, wow, like I could, like actually paying attention to the details 
um, and, and really thinking about the security properties of things. You can find bugs even in peer-reviewed papers and stuff like that. Um, so, yeah. Interesting. Very interesting. Sidebar, what's the favorite bug that you found that you've ever found? Um, that's a tough question. One of, one of the ones that, that comes to mind was in, um, uh, there was, there was, so there's this tool called, uh, Synergy, which is this thing that lets you, if you have two, for whatever reason, if you have two computers side by side, it lets you use the same mouse and keyboard on both of them. So if you have like a windows and a Mac and you want to use them both with the same mouse and keyboard, it just lets you okay. drag your mouse to the other thing. Um, and so it tried to implement, um, encryption to, to like encrypt your keystrokes. So someone on your network can't see if you're typing a password into another computer, um, the attacker shouldn't be able to see that. Mm -hmm. And so there was uh, a bug, um, in the way it did the encryption. Um, the technical details sort of are, it was using uh, counter mode, um, to encrypt the data. Um, and, uh, it was using the same nonce for both directions of the encryption. And so to sort of explain that without the crypto mumble jumble, uh, what that means is that it's basically, um, adding a stream of secret data to the, to the messages going in one direction. And it's also adding the same stream of secret data, uh, to the messages going in the opposite direction. And okay. as long as you don't know the stream of secret data, you shouldn't be able to read the um, keystrokes and mouse movements and stuff like that. Um, but the problem was it used the same uh, stream of data for both directions. That was the bug. Um, so what you could do is if you could predict the data going in the backwards direction, you could sort of subtract that and get that secret stream. And then once you know the secret stream, you could subtract that from the data going in the forward direction and decrypt the passwords and keystrokes and stuff. And so that was, okay. um, that was a little bit tricky to exploit because in order to get the keystrokes going from one computer to the other, you had to, um, predict the, uh, data that was going in the opposite direction. And that was a bunch of, um, control messages and weird. It had this like custom protocol for, controlling mm -hmm. itself and stuff like that. Um, and so getting that, get it, that was one of the few bugs where I actually wrote a proof of concept to prove that it's actually possible to oh, very interesting. exploit the thing. And that was like a, that was a fun challenge. Oh, awesome. Very cool. Yeah. I think like, so again, what, again, with like this bug specifically, I, I'm a little bit intrigued. So it was so difficult to do, you had to like, prove it to people that it could actually be done or otherwise they'd be like, Oh yeah, I don't know if that's actually, you know, potentially doable. I think so like, essentially a, a like a, like the white, white hat, hack, white hat hacking. Yeah. Like a, a, a cryptographer, a cryptographer looking at it would definitely be like, Oh yeah, that's nonsense reuse bug. And it's definitely a problem. Fix it. Mm -hmm. Um, so ordinarily I wouldn't have to proof of concept it, but that was one case where like the software authors didn't quite agree with me that it was exploitable. Mm -hmm. Um, and so that was, that was a case where I actually had to write an exploit and record a video and say, Hey, look, I'm actually decrypting my keystrokes. <laughs> I wonder how the reception from them was when they got that video for the first time. I bet that was a, that was a, that was a fun thing to receive, but okay. Yeah. <laughs> Very cool. So I, I want to now back, backing away from the sidebar just there. So I just wanted to ask that because I found, I think that'd be interesting for a lot of the people listening. Um, 
you started, obviously, as we just mentioned, with the company that is now known as ECC, um, working on the Zcash protocol. And you're now in this new role funded via the Zcash Community Grants Program and more of like an independent um, grant recipient working on, you know, audits for the entire ecosystem. What was the process of you deciding to take on a more independent role um, away from the ECC? Um, so I think the one of the main factors was just um, realizing like how much is going on in the Zcash community outside of ECC and how little security support it has. Um, and s sort of at my time at ECC, we always had this um, uh, idea on the back burner of sort of doing community security support. Um, but it would always be deprioritized relative to like actually protecting ECC employees and um, handling bug fixes and stuff like that at ECC. Mm -hmm. um, and so I just sort of um, sort of saw like a need in the community for um, helping out all these projects, all these wallets, um, uh, people building browser extensions, people running infrastructure, needing at least some bare minimum kind of security support. Um, and also uh, so sort of seeing that opportunity and then um, realizing that maybe I can like start my own thing with this. Um, I'm sort of, the way my thinking is, I'm sort of uh, doing this first year of a grant as like a proof of concept of like, mm -hmm. um, proving that this kind of a thing like ecosystem wide security support thing is going to work. Um, and then down the line, hoping to aim for like a direct grant uh, type of thing to just um, fund more and more security support for the community. Okay. And and, and you're speaking relative to the direct grant option within zip 1014. Is that yeah. what you're talking about there? Yeah. Okay. And for people who aren't familiar with that, that would be um, a grant that would be funded straight out of block rewards. Correct. Yeah. It, yeah, it wouldn't have it to come from, okay. Okay. It wouldn't have to come directly from the ZCG or, or and, and then obviously rolling up to ZF. So, okay. Very cool. And then with that specifically, so you mentioned there was like a lot of projects, wallets, um, you know, browser extensions, infrastructure, et cetera. What, what's typically, if this role, if this grant wasn't in place right now, if you weren't in this role, what would be typically the process that these, these organizations or projects would have to go through to get a security grant and what type of cost, you know, does that incur? to independent projects building in the ecosystem. Yeah, so um, there's a lot of overhead to the process. Um, the typical way that it works is you have to be, um, let, let, let's say we're like a wallet, we're developing a wallet. Um, what we'd have to do is reach out to one of many security audit firms. Um, they are usually backlogged with uh, months and months of work. So you have to schedule your audit like at least three months in advance kind of thing. Um, and you're looking at paying, um, it depends on the type of auditing work, but prices generally range from like 500 to $2,000 per auditor day. Um, and the size of an audit is normally like 10 days at least. Mm -hmm. um, and so you're looking at uh, ten or twenty thousand um, dollars. That's sort of on the low end if you want to audit like an app type thing. If you're looking at cryptography, um, it can run up near six figures uh, for one audit. Um, and so that sort of 
process puts a lot of burden on the projects themselves to understand like what their security needs are, like what kind of audit they need, which company do I go for? Like, what are the good names? What are like not so good names kind of thing? Um, so, um, yeah, I sort of see myself as um, bringing security expertise to the whole area and sort of like, mm -hmm. I see my role, like I, I definitely do the auditing and I find bugs and that's like, um, that's a huge part of it. But also the other big part of it is just that sense of like, what should be prioritized? What kind of review do projects need and, and that kind of mm -hmm. thing. That makes a lot of sense because like, I feel like if you were, let's say building a wallet and you would essentially go into like an RFP type process with all these different third party, third party auditing firms. And, you know, if it's in a position where it's not, where it doesn't have Zcash interests at, like at heart, then you could probably get into a position where as a developer, as an owner of a project, you're having to make this decision that is probably pretty difficult and has a lot of consequences to the project itself. So would you say that's a benefit, like having um, someone in this type of role within the ecosystem is a benefit because it takes that that pressure away from the, the independent developers and, and the organizations building on Zcash? Like, does it give, you know, especially for, let's say, you know, smaller projects in the ecosystem that might not even have as much budget as, let's say, companies receiving from the dev fund, like, does that have that? you having someone in that role will make that process a lot easier for them. Yeah, it definitely gets rid of a lot of overhead. Um, mm -hmm. Like I, I'm thinking through the process of like engaging with one of these companies to get an audit. A lot of it is um, uh, meeting to talk and working out scope and signing contracts. And for like, let's say a loan developer working on a project that's, um, they're taking up a significant amount of their development resources just to like schedule these audits and, and do all the calls and stuff like that. Um, mm -hmm. And so I think even though like I'm spread really, really thin, like um, one person is definitely not enough to secure the whole uh, ecosystem. I think it just cuts out that overhead of like mm -hmm. having each like loan developers and small projects try to like figure out their own audits and, and things like that. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I totally, I can totally see that, see that as a, as a benefit here. One of, you know, the projects that you audited recently that may have really benefited from this grant specifically was, was Y wallet. So, um, for people not familiar, Y wallet is a, is a Y cash and Z cash wallet. And it has an, I'd say unique, um, syncing mechanism that allowed it to perform relatively well during the, you know, increase blockchain size and, and sandblast attack, you know, from a few months ago, and that's currently ongoing, but I think at lower levels, you know, what was the process? I mean, just of why wallet, like obviously the report is out there and you found some things, um, you know, that were not, I'd say there was no critical bugs, correct? There was like one high priority, then a couple more moderate ones, if I'm not mistaken. Yep. And, you know, so what's the process of like engaging with an individual developer, you know, auditing their code base and then kind of submitting that, that audit to the community Could just walk through that like process and we can use YWAL as the example there. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, um, sort of with, with YWAL, it was sort of an easy case cause all the code is like out there and it was actually, um, really, really well organized. Like normally, normally a lot of the time gets spent, like just finding the code that you need to audit and, and, and stuff like that. But, um, 
But thankfully, the code is like well organized, so I didn't actually need that much of. Uh, so why well, its main author is Han H. Um, that's his name on the forum and stuff. Um, and so I didn't need much of his help to to get going um, at all. So basically, my process, uh, my audit process, in brief, is generally um, I like to start by just like using the thing and understanding what it is and like just reading as many docs as I can because that's like kind of like fun almost lazy work that you can just like do uh mm -hmm. read a bunch of stuff get it all into your, into your head and then I start this like brainstorming process um where I'm really thinking about like okay uh I'm an attacker I want to attack this thing what sort of stuff do I want to attack like are there what what are, what are my goals um do I want to like steal the user's funds? Do I want to like compromise their privacy in some way? And I just sort of like enumerate this big list of um, everything that's uh, putting myself in the attacker's shoes, everything I might want to do. Um, and then I also, on the flip side of that, I also start brainstorming like, okay, what, as a developer of this thing, what are all the possible mistakes I could have made? Um, Maybe uh, maybe the random number generator I use to generate the secret key that holds my money is broken in some way. Uh, maybe uh, something about the way I generate transactions leaks my privacy in, in some way kind mm -hmm. of thing. And I just sort of like, without before diving into any of the code or uh, reading any of the, like, the technical spec and docs or things like that, I just make this brainstorm. Everything an attacker might want to do, everything that could possibly go wrong that I can think of. Um, and I really like doing that because it sort of like primes my brain to be thinking in attacker mode um, and to be aware of all the things that could go wrong. So as I start reading the code in the next step, um, things, if one of those things actually has gone wrong, uh, it'll sort of like jump out at me. And I find that like speeds up the audit process a lot. Mm -hmm. um okay so yeah after that brainstorming uh it's really just i like to do like a linear scan over all of the code um literally i just like go down the directory in alphabetical order read all of the code files um that might seem a little bit weird because like uh if you know uh software engineering you're, you know that you're not going to get like that great of an understanding of the program by doing that um because you really need to like trace through which functions calling which other function, how certain mm -hmm. classes relate to each other. Um, but I actually find in that like linear scan, just having done the brainstorming and everything, a lot of problems, most of the problems I find jump out at me uh, that way. Um, okay. And then sort of after I do that, I'll have this like huge list of like things I think might be wrong. Um, then I'll go back and check all of them and find which ones are actual real bugs um and uh, write up the report and think about ways to fix the bugs okay very cool and then with why wallet specifically i know there was one you know high priority um bug just dive into you know because again from a non-technical perspective when i read something like that that when it says high priority that can be a bit alarming but i just want to see if we can like maybe ease some minds with regards to that security audit specifically yeah. like what were the what were the specific bugs with, with the Y wallet code base. Yeah. So I can explain that high, high priority bug. Um, so this is only a problem if, uh, this is only a problem for users who used Y wallets feature of saving your contact list in your memos. Um, 
So YWallet has this, uh, it sort of goes above and beyond just being a wallet and it's also a, a chat app. Uh, so you can add contacts like, so um, uh, the, the, the common names we use in cryptography are Alice and Bob. So Alice can add Bob as a contact in her wallet. Um, the way she does that is she types the name Bob and then she puts in Bob's uh, shielded address and then Bob can do the same on his side add a contact named Alice uh, with Alice's shielded address. Um, and so uh, YWallet wanted a way for if you move your wallet to a new phone or something like that, uh, you want the your contact list to come over with it, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so the way it did that is it would send a bunch of transactions to itself and it would encode the contact list into the memo field in a certain way. And so um, what the bug was is that it was not authenticating those memos that were storing the contact list. So if I knew Alice's address, as an attacker, what I could do is I could send her some Zcash. And along with that Zcash, I could include um, a memo that's a specially formatted memo in that same way as YWallet stores contacts. And I would actually be able to update the address for Bob in her contact list. And so wow. what I could do, okay. yeah. So um, what I could do as the attacker is I could tell Alice's wallet, hey, Bob's address, it's not Bob's address anymore. It's actually my address. So anytime Alice sends a message to Bob, it's now going to come to me. And now I do the same thing to Bob. I say, hey, uh, Alice's address, it's not that anymore. It's my address. Now Bob's wallet, anytime Bob sends a message to Alice, quote unquote Alice, it comes to me. So now I'm in, as the attacker, I'm in this situation where Alice is trying to, Alice and Bob are trying to talk to each other, but actually their messages are going through me um, mm-hmm. because they're unbeknownst to them. My address is in their contact list for each other's names. Um, and so, uh, yeah, so that's only an issue if like, um, you're using that chat feature and you've also opted to save your contact list in your memos, which I believe is optional. Um, but anyway, yeah, that, that is, yeah. Yeah. Uh, that was fixed uh, basically by making sure that these contact list updates only happen in transactions that were actually signed by your own wallet. So if you know someone's address, you're powerless to change their um, contact list. Okay, very cool. Awesome. And, you know, with that specifically, I think it's it's good to understand like how you know, you're going through this process. And I, I hope that, you know, anyone listening that is interested in, you know, this, this specific field and, and, and protocol security would, would find that insightful, because I think that um, kind of outlining that workflow, I think a lot of people just think it's, you know, just reviewing code bases all day. And I think kind of outlining that brainstorming and the strategy side of it as well was a was particularly interesting for me to hear on my part. So yeah, really, really cool to hear on all that and excited to hear a little bit more about, you know, the the grant going forward and the various things that you're going to be looking at. So excited to follow that along. I do want to pivot though now, because there was something specific I specific I wanted to talk to you about that might be of more, I don't want to say like relevance to everyday just Zcash users and maybe not developers. Um, I want to talk about Light Wallet D, which is, um, yeah. correct me if I'm wrong, I, I might butcher all of this. It is a 
it is it's a server that people can that that people typically use when they're using like a, a Zcash wallet on their 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 iPhone or an Android. It's kind of like the opt-in server that you can use that can act as a node to verify your transactions. Um, is that a relatively okay way to explain it? Yeah, that's right. So if you're using um, any shielded Zcash wallet, um, it's going to be downloading transactions from this server and sending your transactions through this server. So, yeah, and that's and that's the server that's like confirming them and then eventually posting them to like the yeah. blockchain. Okay, what at a at a very, and we can kind of dissect this and go deeper as we go. But what are at a high level to kick start this conversation? What are some of the risks and trade offs? With using a Zcash shielded mobile app um, with with Light Wallet D. Yeah, so um, there's sort of two different domains to think about risks of uh, using the Light Wallet D server. Um, the first domain is sort of like integrity, uh, like the integrity of the data your wallet is getting from the server, um, and the second domain is like the privacy of your own data in your interactions with that server. Um, so sort of uh, on the integrity side, um, uh, the server is, uh, so the the buzzword is, um, what is the buzzword? The buzzword is um, honest, but curious. Uh, so the wallets are trusting the server to be honest about the data. Um, so when the wallet fetches a transaction, um, or when the wallet asks the server, hey, which transactions belong to me? Uh, in the current implementation, the server could totally make stuff up and be like, hey, you just got a million Zek uh, in this transaction here, um, kind of thing. And the wallet uh, wouldn't really uh, uh, wouldn't really be able to find out about that until they tried to spend it and it didn't work. The recipient wasn't getting the money uh, kind of thing. Um, so that's sort of like the first domain is there's like, there's um uh the server has an op if you broke into that server you have an opportunity to like lie to wallets about how much money they have um and that's that problem is not that hard to fix um the block the whole purpose of a blockchain is for like wallets to be able to verify um the the integrity of data like independently um and so that sort of those integrity checks can just be in the future be forwarded onto the wallet and um, so that's not really a big deal. It's just sort of an a artifact of the current implementation. Okay. Uh, the other domain, the, the privacy of your own data in your, in your interactions with the server, um, that's where things get more interesting. And, and I find like this whole area of like privacy, like super interesting because there's all sorts of like, uh, clever attacks that you can do. Um, so let me see if I can summarize. Uh, sort of the privacy properties you have while you're using this server. Um, so the first thing to know is that um, all of the transactions your wallet sends, um, for most wallets, I'm not sure if any of them have implemented Tor or anything like that. I don't think so. Um, so yeah, I'm going to go out on a limb and say pretty much any Zcash shielded wallet, uh, when you send a transaction, um, it's going to go through that server. So your wallet is connecting to the server, the server sees your IP address, and it sees the wallet say, hey, here's a transaction, please forward it onto the rest of the network. Um, 
And the reason why that's not a huge privacy leak is because if you're doing a, shield, a fully shielded transaction, the transaction just looks like random data. Um, there's some information leak, like how many uh, output notes you're creating. So if you're if you have a transaction and you're sending uh, simultaneously sending funds to like 50 different people, the node could be like, hey, this transaction is like going to a lot of people or something like that. But by and large, it just looks like random data. So the node sees um, okay. transaction comes in, it looks random. I have no idea. Well, I know the IP address this is coming from, but I have no idea who it's going to. Um, on the receiving side, things are even more interesting. Um, so uh, the way Zcash works um, at present is that the wallet to find its transaction, to find its transactions, to find the money that belongs to it, it has to basically download all the transactions, try to decrypt them. The ones that it can decrypt belong to it. Um, and that's how it finds its money. Um, and so there's a privacy leak in the current implementation where the wallet downloads um, a compact representation of all the transactions just to save bandwidth. Uh, but then once it finds a transaction that belongs to it, obviously the user is going to want the memo field, all the other data associated with it. Uh, it will actually reach back out to the server and say, hey, I want to download this entire transaction. And some wallets will sort of try to hide which transaction they're downloading by downloading the whole block, um, uh, all the transactions around it in the block. Um, but I think uh, the majority of the implementations, they just say, hey, I'm interested in that particular transaction. Can you send me the whole okay. data? Because I want the memo. Um, and so that creates a, a privacy leak. And um, so let's let's put all this together and, and see what the what sort of the consequences are. Um, we have the server that sees, let's imagine we have, like, let's say, let's just suppose for a moment, everyone's using the same server. And there's some attacker who's compromised it. That server, anytime someone sends a transaction, that server sees IP address X sent this transaction. And now, anytime someone receives a transaction, their wallet is going to um, download them all, decrypt the one that belongs to them, and then say, hey, I want the full transaction for this one because I just decrypted it. It belongs to me. I want the memo and stuff like that. Now, as the server, which we're assuming everyone's using, um, I'm seeing the IP address tra transactions came from, and I'm also seeing who is receiving um, each transaction. So through that, I can say IP address sent this transaction, then this transaction was downloaded by this other IP address. So IP address X paid IP address Y. And so if you're in this privileged position of being the server, um, for everyone that's using the same server, uh, you can sort of see who is paying who, uh, but you can't see any of the amounts or anything like that because they're all encrypted. Um, so this is sort of uh, the trade-off uh, that's currently being made uh, for the sake of like performance. The, the fix to this would be for the wallets to act like a full node and just download the mm -hmm. entire everything um not never never telling the server which transaction uh belongs to it 
because um, the wa that wallet would then be verifying all of the blocks and all of the transactions. Yeah, yeah. So the okay. the the reason Zcash is private um, is well, number one, because the outgoing transactions just look like random noise. But number two, because full nodes download all of the transactions. So from the outside perspective, if you're watching a full node, it behaves no differently, whether it received a transaction or it didn't. So as like an attacker looking on the network, you can't tell if um, that person received a transaction or not. You could see it broadcast a transaction if like the node operator decides to spend some of their money, but you can't tell that it download, that, that it actually received okay. a transaction. And so the weakness with the light wallet server is wallets are actually telling the server, hey, this transaction belongs to me, uh, kind of thing. So that's and are, what the and are leakage they is. Are, is the leakage disclosing, what type of in information is it disclosing? Um, it's just disclosing the fact that um, a transaction belongs to the wallet. Or a block had a, in the case of... Um, I think ZekWallet Lite will download the whole block. So in that case, mm -hmm. the wallet is saying um, one transaction in this block, one or more transaction in this block belongs to me. Uh, okay. So that's the only leakage. It's not leaking the amount. It's not leaking any addresses, uh, like shielded addresses. Uh, it's just say, the, so if you're the server, the data that you get is um, uh, a wallet at, at this IP address fetched this transaction. Um, okay. Yeah. So, so the main, like the main, like data leak that's coming from potentially using Light Wallet D is the fact that your IP address can be can be can be discovered by this by either a malicious attacker monitoring the server or the server operator itself. Uh, yeah. So even in the case where wallets try would try to like anonymize themselves with Tor, um, the server is still getting a substantial amount of information. It can sort of see. Um, as long as the wallets are coming from uh, a unique IP, even if it's not the actual user's IP, like they're using a VPN or something like that, the server gets can put all this data together and get the graph. Like they can construct this graph of like uh, wallet A paid wallet B, then wallet B paid wallet C and D, and wallet D paid wallet A. And they, they can like sort of like... Um, Think about how a bunch of like points are the wallets and then they can draw arrows between them to say like which wallets are paying which other wallets okay that's really interesting so say like you're starting like for example like this circular economy among like five or six or seven or eight people and you're you're using tor using vpns etc it would still be able to somewhat link all of those transactions together and if someone had a personal like security like misstep, then that would even leak more data, which could potentially like, let's say I like we're in a circular economy and I forget to use a VPN while I'm using, you know, a light wallet D wallet, then that security leakage could even could make that graph even stronger. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. That's exactly okay. right. So the, the server is getting like the metadata of who's paying who. Um, and then to use that in an actual attack, depending on whatever the circumstances are, you'd combine that with other data like someone slipping up and revealing their actual IP address um, or um, maybe maybe someone's wallet gets compromised and um, they can sort of um, learn about what's going on in your in your economy that mm -hmm. way kind of thing. Okay, um, interesting. 
Wow. Okay. And are there any, is, are these risks specific to any, let's say operating system? Like does, does, you know, like Android or, or an Android operating system or iOS, is that, does that increase the opportunity for more data leakage versus something like I'd say Graphene OS? Um, as far as these privacy leaks are concerned, uh, all operating systems are the same because this is like okay. fundamental to the architecture of how it currently works. Um, I should say though, that the, although this sounds kind of bad, um, it's actually like way, way better than if all of the data was posted on a transparent blockchain like Bitcoin, where everyone can see uh, who is paying who. This is yeah, least, that's a good, um, that's a very good clarification. <laughs> yeah, yeah. This is at least you have to break into the server um, or multiple servers if there are multiple servers that different wallets are using. Okay. Um, yeah. So it's it, even though it sounds really bad and scary, it's still a, like a massive improvement over um, transparent chains. No, hundred percent. Yeah, hundred percent. I and I'm glad that you brought that up, and probably myself should have clarified that as we got into this conversation. But specific to this, this though, is you mentioned having a phone like run just the entire, you know, run the entire blockchain on 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 the uh, on the mobile wallet. Is running your own node, let's say at home or wherever, um, or a group of people? I know in Bitcoin they call them Uncle Jim nodes. So like a group of five or six people like trust one person to run the node and they kind of all linked up to that. Is that potentially, well, let's just focus on running your own node. Is that a way to mitigate these risks? And you know, how, if, if that is the case, how would that be, you know, how is that mitigating, you know, the risk with light quality? Um, yeah. So if you don't want to have these privacy leaks, running your node is definitely the way to go. Um, uh, I would say for the vast majority of people, you just want to use uh, a mobile wallet. There's one reason for that is that, um, uh, especially on iOS, uh, it's a lot harder to get malware on your phone. Um, uh, and Apple and, and Google are really good with pushing out security updates as long as you've got like a moderate enough device that's still getting security updates. I would mm -hmm. say for the vast majority of the people, you just... Uh, you shouldn't really care that much about these privacy leaks and you should care more about um, number one, making sure you have a good backup of your seed phrase. So you don't lose your funds. That's like uh, your, 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 your privacy is sort of like a lower down on the priority list if you've just lost all your money. So that's like number one. Uh, number two is um, using these consumer devices. You're sort of uh, safer uh, in the face of malware that's trying to steal your stuff. Obviously, if you have like a huge amount of funds, I would just use a hardware wallet for that. You don't want to have like millions of dollars or whatever on your phone. That would just be a dumb idea. Um, so for the vast majority of people, I would just recommend using a normal shielded Zcash wallet on your phone. Um, okay. uh, that's going to be, that's going to be your best option. But if you do want maximum privacy, um, and you're concerned about the, the information leaks, um, yeah, running your node is definitely the way to go. Um, uh, uh, you still have the leak in the sense of every, like people can see your node broadcasting your transactions and there's some, uh, work going on to, um, address that, like protocols like Dandelion plus plus and things like that. Okay. Um, uh, but you will be private on the receiving side. The Zcash D node is very carefully designed so that 
when it receives a transaction, uh, nobody can tell that you received a transaction except for you or anyone who's compromised your full node. So the downside to running your own node is now you're responsible for maintaining it. You got to keep it updated, um, uh, run it on a secure operating system, make sure you don't get malware, that kind of a thing. Okay. And and if someone's running their full node, obviously there's some some interfaces that you can like kind of interact with the node to make it more of like a better user experience. Is is it possible to let's say run a full node um, on your machine at home and then also hook up a you know mobile wallet like let's say Y Wallet, for example? Could you hook up Y Wallet to your node and keep your node running all the time? And then when you wanted to spend your Zek out in the real world, you could use something like Y Wallet. Is is that does that is that a process that um, that people could do if they wanted to do that? Um, so, uh, with Y wallet, I don't think you can do that out of the box. Um, actually what you could do is you could set up your own node, set up your own light wallet D, um, so that you're just running the whole infrastructure of the wallet. Um, and yeah, that, that would, um, if you're concerned about like, let's say there's Y wallet's default server. If someone's trying to de-anonymize uh, Zcash users, that's like their first attack target. They're going to be trying to break into that thing, um, get the data for the most amount of people for the least amount of effort kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, so if if you wanted to, you could run your own um, full node, your own Light Wallet D, um, and connect your Y Wallet to that. Um, and then in that case, someone would have to break into your own server uh, in order to start okay compromising those privacy leaks and Um, and okay sorry go ahead uh the other the other option is um so zek wallet used to have this feature where it could run a full node on your computer and connect to it uh from a mobile app and like use it from a mobile app um and that i'm not sure if that's still being maintained or built so i'm i'm not sure if i can recommend that um, and I also wouldn't recommend that approach just because of, um, like you're exposing your node to more malware risk and stuff like that. Just running it on your regular PC. Okay. And, you know, with, with Zek Hub specifically, one, one of our community members wrote, you know, running a node with a, a Raspberry Pi four, are those like the types of machines people should be looking into, um, when considering running a full node? Um, I would say, well, so you want to be careful with like the Raspberry Pis and stuff because sometimes Zcash D likes to use a lot of memory. Um, okay. But I would say as long as you've got enough memory and as long as you're keeping it up to date regularly, like you don't want to just like leave it in a closet somewhere and then forget to apply security updates. Like you should, if it's Debian, you should be apt get updating it, um, like weekly kind of thing. Um, but yeah, really, you could you could use a Raspberry Pi, you could run it in the cloud, um, or, or use an old computer, anything like that. Okay. And then the process of getting that up and running is you can go to, I, I believe, z.cache, and then they have a list of you know commands that you can put into um, your your op- op- operating system or yep. command line. Yeah, command line. And you can put that in, and it the the program will run. And then as long as you're you know accessing that and keeping that up to date and running that frequently, then you should be okay when you want to use your funds yep. um, via that. Okay, cool. And reminder, this is like, like we mentioned, this is probably something that people like, if you're, 
searching for like that maximum privacy. Like it, it's, it's, a, it's a, for whatever the situation, whether it's something you want to have, or maybe you're in a specific security situation, operating for maximum privacy is probably the only time that this is necessary for most other people having, you know, Y wallet or Zach wallet light on their iOS devices, probably, you know, sufficient privacy enough. Yeah, right. Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. Awesome. And then just kind of one thing that's really big right now in the, the Zcash community specifically, just because there are a lot of vendors in the world um, that do accept Zcash as a payment. Um, but doing that and just like, like for where I'm currently based, like going out to a store or a bar or wherever to like want to spend money in Zcash is relatively difficult. So now there's these third party, you know, payment providers where you can have an app on your phone um, for some other projects, they actually have like the apps embedded into the wallet itself. So I know like Nighthawk is going to in include a third party payment provider. And these payment providers typically offer transparent address support. So if you want to go buy a coffee at Dunkin' Donuts with Zcash using Flexa, a third party payment provider, you're using a transparent address. Mm -hmm. What is, from my understanding, I saw something Andrew Miller tweeted recently, and it was basically along the lines of like, as long as you're not buying from an exchange, moving to a shielded wallet yeah. and then moving all of the funds out to a transparent out to like a flexa like as long as you're not going over that process the privacy you're getting is still pretty strong could you just dive in a little bit more into potential privacy leaks and stuff like that when someone's using a third-party payment provider yeah totally so um yeah that's absolutely right so uh the key thing to understand is to um think about exactly what information is being exposed when you're um, paying for something that way. And so the, the key to doing this privately is to keep uh, some shielded balance in your wallet at all times. Um, let's say, let's, let's use an example of someone who uh, buys, a, buys a $5 coffee every day. Um, they should keep maybe like $100 in their wallet. Um, and then every day when they buy their coffee, they're just going to take... Um, uh, whatever, $5 worth of Zec out of their, uh, out of their wallet and send it to this transparent address, um, that goes to the coffee shop. Um, and so when they make that transaction, what, 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 what information are they exposing? They're exposing, um, someone because they're coming from a shielded pool. They're not going to reveal who, where the money is coming from or who they are. Um, the coffee shop will know who they are. So the coffee shop can is probably going to see the transaction and say like, okay, this wallet generated this transaction, but nobody else on the blockchain is going to know where the money is coming from. Um, they're going to see uh, basically the fact that X amount of money went to this particular T address. So $5 went to this coffee shop, which is really not that much information when you think about it, like they're a coffee shop, right? So, someone can probably predict like there's there's more information leakage from the coffee shop's point of view like people can see the how many people are buying coffees and maybe the coffee mm -hmm. shop's competition can be like oh wow like a lot of people are paying with zcash maybe i should support zcash too kind of thing and um so the coffee shop kind of has to be concerned about their privacy in this example um but 
uh, you as the Zcash wallet user, as long as you're just paying out of your shielded balance, um, the world, the public blockchain world only learns, hey, someone bought a coffee. They don't know who you are or anything like that. Mm -hmm. So your privacy is still really well protected. Um, the issue that Andrew Miller was referencing is um, uh, your privacy is not good uh, if you use the shielded pool as like a pass through, like a lot of people think about privacy as like, uh, or think it's possible to get privacy by like mixing up your coins or like passing them through some privacy layer to like disconnect their past from their future kind of thing. So if you're looking at their future or present, you sort of get blocked by this, like going through the shielded pool or going through this mixer. And that really doesn't work because of like, a really, really, it sounds like a really, really dumb attack, but there's actual academic papers that study this and show that it actually works and they can, they can correlate transactions this way. Um, the way it works is you just look at the transaction amounts going in and out. And if the amounts are similar, then you can sort of say, Hey, that's probably coming from the same person. So in the coffee shop example, if you, let's say you have a hardware wallet that's got, that's transparent. It's got all of your funds in it. Every time you spend from that, it's going to be visible in the blockchain. Uh, let's say instead of putting $100 in your wallet to buy coffee every day, every day you send $5 from your hardware wallet into your shielded wallet in the morning, and then you go buy $5 worth of coffee. So someone looking at the blockchain sees $5 in, $5 out, $5 in, $5 out. They can be not 100% sure, but they can be pretty damn sure that because the amounts are the same or very close, um, that the money coming out is connected with the money going in and then they can trace it back to your hardware wallet and where you, it came from before then and stuff like that. Um, so yeah, that's really the key is to hold mm -hmm. your funds in the shielded pool and spend from there. And then you're still privacy, even if you're sending to a T address, but don't use the shielded pool yeah. as like a pass through and 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 a, a big misconception too is when we say like hold your funds in the shielded pool i think people mean like hear that and like oh i should put my savings in the shielded pool i i think for me it's more rather like no just like if you're if you know you're going to spend two thousand dollars worth of zach or you're going to spend let's say you know 50 zach over the next you know month or two months or three months then just keep that there and acquire that over time and then just spend from that and don't like have this situation where you're always having to like refill it and then spend it. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. You don't want to keep, uh, so right now there's no uh, shielded, shielded hardware wallets are like sort of on the horizon still. Um, so once, once shielded wallets are here, I would recommend like keeping most, like the bulk of your money in one of those. Um, but yeah, right. If you have like a, a big bag of Zach, uh, you don't want to be keeping that all on your phone. Uh, you want to be keeping it in a hardware wallet, making sure uh, your seed phrase is really well backed up in multiple locations and, and things yeah. like that. Okay. And then like with regards to like Flexa specifically, like even in this example, right, it's still, it's still the, the same, it's still the same type of privacy leakage because while the stores themselves might not be um, accepting the ZEC because you're paying via like this auto-generated gift card, you're still sending it to a T address and you're sending it to a T address kind of associated with like the fact that you're buying Chipotle or, or, or coffee or whatever. So it's like that same 
data leakage is still present, but as long as you're, you have like, let's say a pool of like 50 Zach, and then you're spending 0.25 and you're just kind of withdrawing from that, then you're not leaking a huge amount of data about yourself. Yeah, exactly. You're just okay, leaking cool. uh, the fact that somebody paid 0.25 Zach for this thing. So the the someone looking at the blockchain might not even know what you're paying for just by the T address, but um, I sort of like to be over conservative and just assume anything with a T address, like people are going to be able to do fancy blockchain analytics and figure out where the money goes and figure out what what's being paid for. So yeah, yeah, no, totally true. And you know, this is all really helpful information. So let's kind of recap this last like 30 minutes that we've had um, with regards to light wallet D and and you know spending to using third-party payment 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 apps that use transparent addresses because I want to recap this just to make sure that the information here um, you know people can kind of kind of put all this together. Firstly, uh, please please correct me if I'm wrong. It, it the, we are talking specifically about private like blockchains and payment applications that have a strong level of privacy. With things like Bitcoin, it is a much different ballgame and there is way more data being exposed about users because it is a transparent blockchain versus something like Zcash, which has a shielded, um, which has, you know, it's a public blockchain, but it has the ability to do encrypted and shielded transactions. Okay, so we're good there. Yep, <laughs> Just, absolutely. Okay, yep. awesome. And then using Light Wallet D, there are some risks if you're using it and you might sometimes not have the best privacy, operational security that you could be leaking IP addresses and there could be the potential of a server or someone monitoring a server to understand what IP addresses are using to spend and receive shielded Zcash. Yep. The metadata okay. is exposed to the server. Yeah. And with, but with regards to that, most people should still be okay with that because they're still getting a much higher level of privacy than they would as if they were using something like yeah, Bitcoin way, for way payments. Better. Yeah. Okay. And then if they wanted to um, potentially have a stronger privacy set, even against that level of privacy, running a node and running your own light wallet D server is something that would be, you know, like potentially good for that person to do. But understanding there's a lot of different, um, different new attack vectors, like someone could try to put malware on a specific device or anything like that. So operational security has to be very, very high for something like that. Yeah, exactly. If you do that, okay. you're getting the extra privacy benefits of running your own node. Um, but the cost is you have to maintain that node and stay up to date with security updates. Okay. And then lastly, if you're spending Zcash, even if you're spending it to a transparent address or using a third-party payment provider, as long as you're not using it as a pass-through, meaning you have transparent Zach or you buy something from an exchange shielded wallet and then sending it all to the transparent address. As long as you're not doing that and you're holding funds in a shielded wallet, your privacy set is still very strong. Yep. Okay. Awesome. Well, I think that's all really helpful information. I think even specific to light wallet D because I, I do see sometimes in the Twitterverse that people have these concerns about it. And I think and me and Zuko debate this because me and Zuko will sometimes go into like philosophical debates on a Tuesday afternoon for whatever reason. And we'll have this debate. And then the overwhelming consensus that I hear from most people, including yourself here today, is that most people, 99.5% of people are going to be fine with using Light Wallet D on a mobile device. Um, so I think that's helpful that we could kind of have this discussion, but still remind people that it's still safe for most people out there to be using something like that. Um, is there anything that you want to add to that before we kind of go into like a closing question here? 
Um, yeah, I think, uh, I think, uh, another thing is to like realize these, um, privacy properties are still in flux. Like this is still a system that's being built and, um, these privacy leaks are not inherent to, um, the technology. Like they, um, they can and probably will be fixed in the future as, uh, um, we explore like different ways that this can work. So it's uh, my my sort of my sort of vision um, for how how I would like to see this play out is for um, us to figure out ways to like patch these privacy leaks um, without like users even having to know about it. Like their wallet won't slow down or anything like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and that'll just take that'll just take some like engineering effort in the future to figure out. Um, yeah. But it's definitely something that I don't think people should be pessimistic about. Like it's something over the course of time and more engineering and more resources are poured into the project. Like those things will get sorted out over the course yep, of time. For sure. Yeah, for sure. Awesome. Well, I appreciate like the insights there. I, I wanted to end on maybe, a, maybe a lighter question or whatever, or, or something that, you know, just from your perspective, what are some of the more bigger security or even privacy misconceptions that you hear a lot about Zcash because you've been around obviously since the very early days, like that you hear a lot and that you'd really just like to address. Yeah. So um, a really common one is people pointing out um, that a lot of people still just use transparent addresses. I think there's, there's sort of, there's sort of misconceptions on both sides. Uh, Like I see people, I see, I see, I see some people saying uh, Zcash isn't really private because there's so many people using transparent addresses. Um, and I, I think that's sort of a misconception because even though this transparent uh, address ecosystem exists and people are using it a lot, uh, everyone still has the option to use shielded. Um, and the fact that the transparent stuff exists doesn't take away from the privacy of the, the shielded stuff. Uh, so that's sort of the misconception on one side, but I also think there's a misconception on the other side of that issue, um, which, uh, so there's this concept called the, the, the tyranny of the default. And that's this idea that like software comes with settings and whichever settings are the default are like what 99% of people are going to use because most people don't look in the settings and configure things. And, um, I, I sort of suspect that a lot of the transparent usage is actually um, still in this state of like tyranny of the default. Like um, most wallets, like, uh, geez, I'm not even up to speed on what the cool wallets are these days, but like things like Jack's Liberty. Um, the, 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 the I think Exodus, Exodus has tatter support yeah yeah like most of the wallets people are already gonna have on their phone are are transparent support only and so i think i think although the transparent stuff doesn't take away from the privacy of the shielded stuff um i think there's still this huge challenge of like i think a lot of people are being forced into using the transparent side um just because that's what's out there and that's what's available um, and so I'm kind of curious to know, like, how much of the transparent usage is people, um, what would be really bad is like, if people think they're actually getting like shielded privacy, but they're really using a transparent wallet and they just don't know, that would be like really, really bad. 
and I think we should like do something to sort of measure that. Um, or if they they sort of understand their privacy level that they're getting from transparent, but they just don't have a shielded wallet on their phone yet, um, or the exchange they're using doesn't support shielded yet. Um, so yeah, I'm curious like what sort of the ratio of uh, the transparent usage is, how it relates to, to those ideas. Yeah, I think, you know, I think it's both, right? I think, I think you probably have a mix of people who want to hold um, Zach in, in, in a hardware wallet, right? I think there yep. are people that like the convenience of just using a hardware wallet and using transparent because they view it more as like a longer term hold or investment or play or whatever. Yeah, I think for the people spending it who are kind of like, because I feel like if people are spending it and using it for like that privacy aspect, in my opinion, I would imagine they're more privacy pilled and they're a little bit more aware of like the various options that Zcash offers. So I'm not saying that everyone using Zcash is like spending is using a shielded address. There might be what you just mentioned here, some people mistakenly using tatters, but I would imagine most of the people spending it are aware of that. But again, I don't know. And it'd be interesting to kind of get that data. How do you mitigate that? How do you think that you know, the tyranny to the default, how do you imagine a future where that's, you know, resolved for and people, you know, have more of an option to opt into transparency rather than potentially not knowing they're opting out of, you know, privacy? Yeah. So I think the key to combating that is with um, sort of wallet UX design that really clearly communicates what information is being leaked. Um, and that's not just true for uh, when you're using transparent transactions and addresses, but also other kinds of information leakage. Like when you're moving your funds between two different shielded pools, that will leak the amount the amount of money mm -hmm. you're sending. Um, so I think there's like room to design wallets to educate their user, like before they submit a transaction, like help the user understand exactly what information that's leaking. Um, for example, if they're buying a coffee with a T address, the wallet can sort of reassure them that someone's finding out someone's buying a coffee, but they're not going to know it's you kind of a thing. Um, okay. So I think that's the first thing is just like designing wallets. And I think that's like a really um, unexplored design space. Like, um, like in our browser, we have like HTTPS and we have like the lock that uh, tries to communicate to people when the connection is secure and I don't know how people understand, like people who are technical can understand that. But I don't know how like non techies understand that. Um, so that's like a sort of an open question in wallet design. Like how do you communicate these subtle privacy leaks? Um, the other, the other thing is just like, I think it's just going to take more um, sort of like pressure, like people requesting shielded support, like, like showing that like um, the, that, yeah, we really value privacy. And if, if we want to use your platform with Zcash, we want to do it in a shielded way. And I think just like um, speaking up about that in a polite and productive way um, with things you want to see support shielded Zcash yeah. um, is a good way to go. And then that needs to be backed up with like some kind of like engineering effort to actually help people implement shielded Zcash um, libraries to make it easy, uh, things like that. Yeah. I, I think the, the first point you made there is really interesting. Like the wallet UX, I think that's like having like, it could even potentially, like if you're about to send 
to even from a shielded pool to a transparent address or you're sending T to T, there's like a warning that pops up. Mm -hmm. It's like, you sure you want to like send this to a public address or you want to leak this data or whatever. Because like for me, a really helpful thing is when I'm just like browsing the internet and I potentially go to a site that's like, maybe I'm like looking up a soccer score in the second division in Estonia and the site's not like secure, then the browser will tell me that like, hey, you sure like you want to like go to the site because it's not secure and you're having, you're having to make this trade off. And most of the time you just click X and you don't, you know, you don't, you don't go see the site. You kind of just give up on that effort. Right. So I feel like if that type of UX, you know, cause I understand the, the, what you're talking about, like that little lock in the browser, um, Venmo is trying to do that with like their private and public payments. And like, I was talking to like my mom, like, a week ago and she was like oh my gosh i didn't even know my payments were public mm. like where do i change it and i'm like you see that little lock and she's like how is anybody gonna see this lock no one sees this yeah. right so i feel like even in that design that even though it says public and private i still feel like that's not enough for like most average users um so yeah that's a really good point yeah whatever design we end up coming up with the key is to validate it with real users and mm -hmm. watch them use it and make sure they understand it um sort of my my philosophy around like privacy and security bugs is that um, you can have a privacy weakness, or you could have a security weakness, as long as users know about it, and they understand it, and it's in their mental model, and um, they're consenting to it, then it's mm -hmm. okay. Uh, yeah. But if people are misunderstanding the privacy level that they're getting, um, or if they're they're not fully understanding of how it works, then that's where like more design or more changes need to be made, um, more improvements. Yeah, no, I would totally agree. Um, but yeah, Taylor, uh, we've talked a lot today. We've covered a lot of different information, and I appreciate you know your time here. I want to kind of we're coming up kind of on the allotted time that we had. What is a question that you may? Uh, was there anything that I didn't ask you that you may have wanted to be asked during this like last, you know, hour? Um, not really. I think you actually managed to cover everything I could possibly have thought of. Um, yeah, okay. that was really good. <laughs> awesome. Well, I appreciate it. And again, thank you so much for your time. I guess as we, as we, you know, wrap up this call, where, where's a place that people can follow you, follow your work and, and stay up to date on everything. Zcash, um, yeah. Um, so I'm, security. I'm uh, primarily diffuse sec on Twitter. Um, I still haven't fully switched over to Mastodon. I, I think I'm a little bit addicted to Twitter. Um, but yeah, Diffusec on Twitter. Um, and you can find more about uh, this project, um, the ecosystem security project at zexec.com. Okay, awesome. And for everybody who's watching and wants to follow along with that, we will put all of that information in the show notes so you can access that quite easily. Taylor, thank you so much for your time. Perfect. Today. Thank you so much.